Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 170, A New Balkan War. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. We had a generous donation from Deborah Logan. I want to say welcome back to Turner Henson, and then welcome new patrons Casso King of Seals, Nicholas Young, Haley McClure, and Slaveka Dykova. Thank you all so much for your support. Now, last time, we did a kind of catching up to understand the state of Bulgaria by 1896. The Stoilov government was trying to help domestic industry grow, But economic changes as the country continued its slow emergence from a kind of early modern Ottoman economic system into a modern European one were, to put it mildly, difficult. Bulgaria's aggressive policy in Macedonia was angering the European powers and causing lawlessness, bribery, extortion, and violence, both in Macedonia itself and in places like Sofia, as various revolutionary organizations grew in power. The revolutionaries themselves were now split primarily between the government-backed and somewhat more removed supremacists and the more ideological Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, or MRO, who still kind of passionately believed in a peasant-led revolution. The conservative Stoilo government was also filling itself with unqualified loyalists, as elsewhere, unemployed white-collar graduates angled for jobs. All the while, Prince Ferdinand solidified his grip on power. He had learned what his predecessor had not, how to effectively control Bulgaria without resorting to changing the constitution. Abroad, the Austrians were still furious that Prince Boris had converted to orthodoxy, but while Ferdinand was still recognized around Europe, he still felt he wasn't treated with the respect he deserved and frankly craved. Okay. So, with that little recap, let's get into things. It's the spring of 1896, and although the Bulgarian government has largely backed off from actively supporting the supremacists or the MRO, well, let's say they've been those Macedonian groups have been pretty ineffective, and the Greeks are still deeply concerned about growing Bulgarian influence in Macedonia. So even though the kind of, I mean, you can argue to what extent the MRO is kind of pro-Bulgarian, that's a big topic, But the vaguely kind of pro-Slav, pro-Bulgarian groups are not being super effective, but regardless, the Greeks are worried about them. Now, the next set of events trace themselves back to intense Ottoman repressions of Armenians in eastern Anatolia. Essentially, there are attempts at Armenians kind of rising up and getting their own independence. There are some terrorist attacks in Constantinople in favor of that, and the Ottomans respond with just horrendous atrocities. And those atrocities draw a lot of criticism from Europe. And sensing a moment of weakness, this leads Greeks on the island of Crete to begin a revolt against the Ottomans. The Greek state itself sends volunteers, while France and the UK send naval forces. Now, all this resulted in a new constitution and an end to fighting on Crete during the summer. So there's a brief kind of explosion of fighting, 
the great powers, they, they send their navies not to support the, the rebels, but to kind of keep an eye on things and potentially intervene if they deem it necessary. But the fighting dies down and Creek gets a new constitution and things seem to normalize a bit. Meanwhile, though, to distract the Ottomans from that fighting in Creek, Crete, Greek detachments begin to enter Macedonia to try to ferment revolt there as well. Remember, Greece has also been trying to kind of convince the population of Macedonia that they are Greeks, so that they should be pro-Greek. Again, some of them do speak Greek, some of them are ethnic Greeks. Best we can tell the majority are ethnic Slavs. We've talked about it, but so you know. So the Greeks are trying to ferment a kind of pro-Greek revolt in Macedonia against the Ottomans. And they do make some progress, but by the autumn of that year, the revolutionaries weren't doing that well in the fighting and decided to kind of pull back to more defensible positions for the winter and prepare for what they knew was coming, i.e. a brutal Ottoman response. Now, oddly enough, it seems that the Bulgarian Macedonian revolutionaries were also quite inactive at this time, despite the fact that so much was happening with the Greeks. Instead, the supremacists held the Third Macedonian Congress in Sofia in November. Once again, in that organization, the voices of moderation went out against those calling for violent uprisings, and basically the supremacists stuck to their position that, for now, negotiations would be the best way to achieve their aims in Macedonia. Now, the Macedonian Revolutionary Organization, the MRO, was also holding a congress, and facing the reality that it was a bit disorganized, very short of money, and unable to really influence this ongoing Greek-led revolt. When it held that Congress sometime in the spring or summer, it was trying to kind of reorganize itself. It wanted a more concrete structure for its secret organization, and was kind of developing along with the goals of kind of, what it wanted to do basically was equip its members to be ready to fight at short notice. Because remember, these were the more ideological ones, the ones that kind of believed in a peasant-led revolution, so they wanted to be ready to fight. Because what they saw is that when the Greeks started their revolt, the MRO was not ready to participate or fight, and they wanted to rectify that. It was also decided to send Gotsidelchev to Sofia to act as a permanent representative of the MRO, mostly working to obtain weapons, whether from the Bulgarian government or from foreign governments that had delegations there. But if the supremacists in the MRO weren't really doing anything in response to all the fighting in Macedonia during 1896, at least the Stoilov government was ready to take advantage by pressuring the Ottomans to finally implement long-promised reforms in Macedonia. Stoilov threatened that if the Ottomans did not do this, he couldn't guarantee that the radicals, i.e. the MRO and the supremacists, would not basically return to violence there. Of course, the reality is that Stoilov had very little influence on these two groups at the moment and probably couldn't have stopped them if they wanted to, but, you know, it was a good negotiating tactic. But, unfortunately for him, the Grand Vizier could see that there wasn't a real threat behind Stoilov's words, he didn't really believe him, and so the Ottoman government refused to make any changes. However, Ferdinand was also putting his own diplomatic pressure on the Sultan directly, for his part, threatening that without the implementation of those reforms, there could be a mass exodus of people from Macedonia into Bulgaria, which, well, frankly, they'd already been about 100,000, but, you know, even more. 
Now, by this point, there was fighting going on in Crete and in Macedonia. And so the Sultan felt he couldn't really afford to ignore these pleas. And so ultimately at his bet, despite the Grand Vizier telling Stoyloff no, the Sultan had the Ottoman government implement, let's call them half-hearted reforms in Macedonia. So some small changes, but nothing on the scale of what they had originally promised and were kind of supposed to do. So by late 1886, the fighting in Greece had stopped while Greek forces in Macedonia were kind of pulling back and consolidating. Bulgaria had managed to extract some very minor concessions from the Ottomans in this moment of weakness, but overall it seemed that 1896 was merely, let's say, a warm-up for the events of 1897. Otherwise, the later months of the year saw elections in Bulgaria return a solid victory for Stoilov's conservatives, albeit with very low turnout and obvious vote manipulation, the usual. Bulgaria also signed some trade treaties with a bunch of European states, the Officers who had dethroned Prince Alexander were given amnesty, and the first ever car arrived in Sofia, which this day makes the city basically a worse place, if you ask me, but that's a separate issue. Extending a bit into 1897, a train line connecting Pernik and Radomir also opened, which was big, as Pernik is a big center for mining, yada yada, so an, an important addition to Bulgaria's rail network, and the first ever movie shown in Bulgaria premiered in Ruse followed a month later by one in Sofia. So kind of all within a very short period, suddenly Bulgaria has movies and its first car. But getting back into the big stuff. Early 1897 saw Greece order official military intervention in Crete. Soldiers under the command of the crown prince of Greece soon began arriving on the island. The European powers responded by demanding a ceasefire and threatening to blockade the Greeks on the island. Remember, the European powers had, by this point, basically more or less agreed that they wanted the status quo in the Balkans. They did not want any changes of territory, any big stuff happening. So again, they had sent their fleets to you know, intervene just in case, but now they're deciding we are intervening on behalf of the status quo. We want fighting to stop. We want things to return to normal. Now, granted, the great powers did understand, you know, they were largely sympathetic to Greece and they understood that something might need to change. So they proposed that Crete could maybe have autonomy within the Ottoman Empire. But the Greeks rejected this, proclaiming the island to be a part of Greece. In response, the Ottomans finally declared war on Greece. So we had another Balkan war on our hands. Now the Greeks initially did pretty well on the island of Crete, but facing bombardment by that international naval squadron that I mentioned, which kind of surrounded the island, well, it basically meant that the Greeks on Crete couldn't achieve a full victory. But, well, that didn't mean very much because in Greece itself, the Ottoman army very quickly marched on Athens, leading the great powers to step in to stop the fighting and prevent a collapse of the Greek government. In addition, the uprising in Macedonia kind of restarted, but, well, basically the Ottoman army moving in on Athens meant that that uprising had no real chance and it quickly petered out. Skipping ahead a bit to later in 1897, the war will ultimately conclude with Crete being given autonomy within the Ottoman Empire, which is what the great powers had initially proposed, but Greece itself was forced to give up some land and pay large reparations to the Ottomans. The Greek economy was also put under the supervision of the great powers in order to ensure this happened. And, well, 
Unsurprisingly, on the whole, the Greek state was utterly humiliated. This was a catastrophic and crippling defeat for them because, well, they had failed in all their goals. They had lost territory. The Greek economy, which could hardly kind of afford to pay huge reparations to the Ottomans, now had to do so. And the Greek government looked, well, pretty bad. Now, King George of Greece pointed to the hypocrisy of the great power's position, noting that, quote, Britain had seized Cyprus, Germany had taken Schleswig-Holstein, Austria had laid claim to Bosnia and Herzegovina, surely Greece had a better right to Crete, end quote. And well, he wasn't wrong, but we got to remember this is the era of realpolitik, an era of might makes right, and the great powers simply had the power to force the world to accept what they want, whether that's Britain getting Cyprus, Germany getting Schleswig-Holstein, etc., etc. Whereas small Balkan powers like Greece, or for that matter, Bulgaria, simply didn't have the strength to exert what they wanted. And frankly, when they tried to rely on these kinds of, um, let's say, like, uh, you know, principled stances, it's like, well, you guys were allowed to do this, so why can't we do the same? To be honest, the great powers don't care. It's like, might makes right. This is how we want it. Too bad. The, the arguments mean nothing to us. Misha Glenny points to the irony of the situation, though, noting that, quote, had King George reasoned more soberly, he would have concluded that the Ottoman Empire would be forced to relinquish control of Crete at some future date. By succumbing to the romantic movement of the liberation of Crete and finding itself at war with the Ottoman Empire, Greece was too weak at the end of the 19th century to combat the influence of Viemaro, i.e. the Amaro, in Macedonia, and unable to respond when the Ottoman Empire allowed the Bulgarian Empire to establish three new bishoprics. The Greek state was in no position to rebuild a network of agents and guerrillas in Macedonia. End quote. So, in other words, you know, this has kind of these interesting similarities to Bulgaria's status in Macedonia, where, you know, going the kind of peaceful route, slowly building up influence, seemed like a pretty good position and definitely seemed to work out when that was done. But succumbing to the romantic notion of, you know, the people will join us, we'll just have a grand liberation war and it'll all go great, basically leads to just a collapse and utter disaster. That's what happened here. Now, I also want to note that, as I mentioned, this whole affair began with those Armenian massacres. And despite the Ottoman victory, those massacres did do tremendous harm to the image of the Ottoman Sultan abroad. One account written in 1897 put it this way. A year or so ago, Sultan Abdul Hamid appeared to be earnestly striving against cruel odds to do what is best for his people. But recent events demand a change of opinion. The good he has done is drowned, drowned in the blood of countless murdered men, women, and children. And in the lurid light of these scenes of horror, he takes on the semblance of some loathsome spider caught in the silken web, web of his own harem and condemned there to reincarnate the most evil of his ancestors, whose very names conjure up dread memories of murder and rapine, end quote. So, the Sultan's image is definitely suffering in the capitals of Europe. But these events are making the nascent Young Turk movement look better and better by comparison. But we'll dive into that more later. Now, while that war had been going on, Bulgaria had been using the moment to make diplomatic gains. 
Again, the Sultan had made some concessions, but in early 1897, with all that happening, he made even more concessions, creating those three new exarchist bishoprics in Macedonia, which were mentioned in the quote a minute ago, and granting amnesty to some Bulgarian prisoners. Overall, kind of, it seemed that Bulgaria returning to Stambolov's old tactics of good relations with the Ottomans were really starting to bear fruit. Now, Ferdinand, for his part, had closed the Bulgarian-Macedonian border and devoted more manpower to guarding it. Well, basically, with all its weaknesses and internal problems, the supremacists could do little than more than kind of voice protest against these moves, but it definitely made relations with the Ottomans better. Secretly, though, Stoilov did assure the supremacists that the government was aligned with them and that these moves were merely strategic. But Stoilov also began building some ties with the MRO in order to kind of balance them with the supremacists and to, in general, expand Sofia's influence in the Macedonian revolutionary organizations. Now, in response, though, to concerns that the MRO's power was beginning to grow in Macedonia, the supremacists decided to found the secret Bulgarian Revolutionary Brotherhood in the MRO's hometown of Thessaloniki. And, well, that new organization started creating some secret cells. Though, again, the MROs were, st- or the supremacists rather, were still very disorganized and not very effective, so this only did so much. Now, although the supremacists spent much of early 1897 trying to kind of rival the MRO, as the year wore on, they realized they just did not have the strength to do it. Or, as Perry put it, quote, two years after its formation, the Supreme Committee, racked by internal dissension and poorly organized, had accomplished little towards its goal of autonomy for Macedonia, end quote. So the two sides, the supremacists and the MRO, initially met and agreed to actually cooperate. However, while the local MRO representative in Sofia led this initiative, the senior leadership in Thessaloniki were very skeptical about working with the supremacists. Now, the MRO, for its part, was developing much more effectively than its rival, gathering weapons from the work of Gotsedelchev and successfully creating a kind of secret mail system for delivering things like revolutionary printed materials and, obviously, weapons deep into Macedonia. However, this expanding footprint also vastly increased the likelihood that the Ottoman authorities were going to kind of catch on to what was happening under their noses. Ironically, during this time, Stoilov also wanted to obtain an agreement on joint action between Bulgaria and Greece to kind of push for reforms in Macedonia, but this failed because, well, obviously Greece was in no position to advocate for anything at the moment. So, instead, Bulgaria now came to an agreement with Serbia, in which Bulgaria, for the first time, agreed to consider dividing Macedonia into spheres of influence with the Serbs and to kind of work with Serbia to grow their influence there. However, with the Ottoman victory over the Greeks, this ended up being kind of mostly symbolic because that was originally designed to kind of counterbalance the Greeks, and now the Greeks were kind of in shambles. But still, there there is some kind of diplomatic talk about not at least working together on a nominal level in Macedonia. Now, in May, Bulgaria was shocked by a reminder that violence was still a very real tool of politics, even aside from the Macedonian question. Now, the residents of two neighboring towns, 
Pestera and Radilovo had been fighting over the ownership of some forests for quite a while, occasionally leading to outbreaks of violence. Right? So just two towns disagreeing about ownership of some land, yada, yada, yada. Well, in May, Bulgaria's most famous writer, Aleko Konstantinov, along with his friend, the politician Mikhail Takev, were in Pestera to celebrate the holiday of the Cyrillic alphabet. Well, the leaders of Radilovo decided to assassinate Takev. While the connection between his move and the fight between the towns is unclear, I couldn't really find a lot of details about what role Takev played, he was a member of Petko Karvelov's Democratic Party, while the leaders of Radilovo were from the Conservative People's Party run by Stoilov, so I guess there was an element of national politics in, in this kind of fight. But anyways, Radilovo wanted to assassinate Takev. Now, to do that, they opened fire on the carriage that was carrying both him and Konstantinov. However, only Aleko Konstantinov was killed. All but the youngest perpetrator, who was a minor, were later sentenced to death for this murder. But still, just like that, at the age of just 34, one of Bulgaria's brightest stars was extinguished. In addition to writing classics like Baigano and To Chicago and Back, Konstantinov was actually a member of the Supreme Macedonian Committee and had served on a wide variety of educational foundations. He had also, of course, helped kind of popularize tourism on Mount Vitosha, which overlooks the city of Sofia. So he was just, you know, an important member of Bulgarian society. Just besides his writing, he was someone who was participating in all kinds of elements of civil society and really just doing a lot to kind of create a Bulgarian identity and a stronger Bulgarian society. Interestingly enough, today he's actually on the 100 Leva Bill, and there's a nice statue of him on Vitushka Boulevard in central Sofia. So a big character. And one, it's sad to say, that died sort of meaninglessly. You know, he wasn't even the target. He just was in the wrong place at the wrong time. I mentioned a few minutes ago that it was only a matter of time before the Ottoman authorities uncovered that huge MRO network established and operating in Macedonia. Well, that time is now. In September, MRO members killed two local Muslim men who had been guarding a field. The Ottoman authorities responded with a mass search of nearby houses, where they found bullets in the home of a local priest who supported the MRO. Nearby, rifles were also found. Now, mass arrests began, as 120 people were taken into custody, where many were tortured. This torture ultimately led to the death of several of these people. However, miraculously, despite all the evidence uncovered and all the people rounded up, evidence of a connection with the MRO was not uncovered and the Ottomans ultimately concluded that this probably wasn't political. The MRO had somehow managed to dodge a bullet. But, well, let's say there are a lot more bullets coming their way. Just a few months later, in late November, 15 men, actually without any clear link to either the MRO or the supremacists, disguised themselves as Ottoman soldiers and slipped over the border between Bulgaria and Macedonia near the town of Kustendil in the middle of the night, avoiding the increased patrols that were put there by Ferdinand. They they soon arrived in the town of Vitnitsa, where they were detected by a night watchman who they managed to kill before he could raise the alarm about their presence. The 15 men then proceeded to break into the home of a wealthy local Muslim man and steal about 800 lira, or about $3,600, though my sources don't specify whether that's $1,897 or more modern ones. I assume 1897 because 
In that case, it's a huge amount of money. Whereas if it were now, that's, I mean, not nothing, but not a life-changing sum of money. Anyways, the Muslim man was then killed along with a Slav who worked for him. And then the group of 15 made its way back to Bulgaria. And well, problems soon accumulated. For one, it turned out that the Slav that they killed was actually an MRO member. His wife assumed that his fellow MRO members had killed him for some reason, and so she reported all of them to the Ottomans. Meanwhile, back in Bulgaria, the 15 were captured and put on trial. However, the military tribunal found them all not guilty, which understandably pissed off the Ottomans quite a bit. So you won't be shocked to hear that while nothing really happened as a result in Bulgaria itself, reprisals in Macedonia were harsh. The Ottomans called in more soldiers and conducted a massive sweep of the Skopje region, finding thousands of guns, stashed money, and arresting hundreds of MRO members and suspected collaborators, again torturing many to extract information. But while the Ottomans were surely aware of the MRO's existence at this point, they were shocked and appalled to discover the scale of its operations. Misha Glenny points out that even the Bulgarian government and the supremacists were themselves kind of staggered by the size of the MRO network in Macedonia. So now everyone in Sofia went into damage control mode. The supremacists loudly declared that they had nothing to do with this entire affair, which to the best of our knowledge is true. But they did work to provide aid to refugees who were escaping Ottoman reprisals and crossing into Bulgaria. Prince Ferdinand attempted to ease the situation by offering to hand the original 15 perpetrators over to the Ottomans in exchange for the Ottomans releasing those they had arrested in Macedonia, but it doesn't seem that they took this deal. Now, the MRO itself was caught completely off guard because, again, it doesn't seem like they were involved in this, and so this caught them by surprise. Now, they had been totally unprepared to offer armed resistance to the Ottoman crackdown, even though they had kind of resolved to do so after the Greek war and the Greek-led uprising. And so they basically watched years of work building up supplies and networks and all this go up in smoke within a short period of time. Now, the Vitnitsa affair, which is what this event is known as, clearly showed that while the MRO had become very effective at spreading its message, gathering members, and disseminating weapons, it was not prepared to quickly respond in a crisis. In response, the MRO decided to create armed units which would be deployed throughout Macedonia and ready to fight the Ottomans the next time there was this kind of a crackdown. Now, so, instead of Cheti being formed on an ad hoc basis, right, instead of just forming these armed groups whenever they're needed, they were to become permanent military units. As a part of the strategy, the MRO was now to become far more aggressive, both in military buildup and in ruthlessly seeking out traitors or spies in its midst. But as you can imagine, I mean, like with any country, going from an army that you only raise in times of war to having a permanent standing army means you need much more money. Meaning the MRO was now basically about to get much more aggressive in forcing people to donate to its cause. Well, in other words, there was going to be a lot more abductions and a lot more blood to flow in Macedonia. All that is to say, once again, as it seems like is always the case, the greatest cost paid would be from local Macedonians. Thamgruf 
One of the founders of the MRO explained his organization's support for actions which left locals in Macedonia vulnerable to these horrific Ottoman reprisals, stating, quote, better an end with horrors than horrors without end, end quote. Of course, that perspective relied on the assumption that Ottoman rule in Macedonia would never end without the MRO's work, an assumption which, in hindsight, I think we can plainly see was wrong. So, Gruev and the MRO will continue to operate under this assumption, that any horrors resulting from their actions are justified because of their end goals. And this brings us to the end of 1897. Greece has been humbled. Its government is looking shaky as frustration with its failures builds amongst the Greek people. As a result, Greek activity and influence in Macedonia has received a major blow. Meanwhile, the supremacists are struggling to do much of anything, while the Bulgarian government slips back into Stambulov's old policy of Ottoman appeasement on Macedonia, as the reality of the effectiveness of that approach wins out over the fading desire to oppose anything connected with Stambulov as old habit. But the MRO and the unaffiliated perpetrators of the Vitnitsa affair have thrown a bomb into this entire situation. The Ottomans are now on high alert, while the MRO itself is more determined than ever to increase its power and influence. While no one at the time could know where things in Macedonia would go from here, one thing seems certain above all. There will be more violence. Sadly, that prediction seems valid for Bulgaria itself, evidenced by the accidental killing of Aleko Konstantinov. It's a reminder that even as the 19th century slowly draws to a close, Bulgaria remains a society struggling to deal with a slew of social problems, including all manner of violence. Next time, we'll see the Macedonian movements make some big changes, Stoilov's government get embroiled in yet more scandals and railroad issues, and the birth of a new movement that will come to define Bulgaria's politics for decades to come. You won't want to miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, check out the website, bghistorypodcast.com, for much more information. A link to this episode's kind of post there is in the episode description, and I'll see you all next time.